0: Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. We find ourselves back in this tremendous book. I don't know if you're like me, I have a hard time finishing books that I'm reading at home. So I've got facts here, there, and everywhere of books that I'm currently in. And I always have this serendipitous experience, this happy circumstance where I see a book I haven't read in a while. And oh, wow, yeah, I remember that was really good. And I pick it up and I read another chapter and I just really delight in, in that next section. Uh, That's kind of what has happened with us, with Titus. We didn't forget about it, and it wasn't on the shelf. But uh, we, as a ministry over the summer, uh, pulpit ministry, took some time as elders to encourage you from Scripture, from examples in Scripture, and also from church history to encourage our service to the Lord, uh, to improve our serve, to challenge our hearts, to grow in our love for and fervent service to the Lord. And so we kind of put Timothy, uh, Titus, excuse me, aside, and we come back to it tonight. So I want to give you a little bit of kind of getting your bearings here in the book. We'll jump in to the first six verses of chapter two, which is where we are in the study, um, but having that hiatus. Let me just remind you what's going on here. In that short letter that we find in Titus, we know the Apostle Paul is writing to one of his closest sons in the faith by the name of Titus. Uh, He's left him on the island of Crete to put things in order. To oversee the church, the the fledgling church on the island of Crete. Uh, In its infancy, he has tasked Titus with being God's servant to bring it to maturity, to bring the church to maturity. And Paul teaches him and instructs him in this little letter what should be of utmost concern in pastoral ministry to bring the church from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity, to set things in order. And his concern really centers in this letter on the godliness of the church, the, the maturity in Christ, the, the practical religion, as it were. Not the doctrinal statement, though that is important, uh, not what they say they believe on their website, but how they actually live in everyday realities. And so Paul addresses Titus on this and calls him to be God's tool in the church to raise them up to godly living. Uh, and in reality, he's he's instructing them in a school of grace. And we find that so clearly said in chapter 2. We'll get to that here shortly in verses 11 through 14, which I think is the, the heart of the book. Uh, everything rises to or falls from that section, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, where Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared to all men, bringing salvation to all men, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present evil age. Chapter one has a focus on godliness in the church, uh, particularly in the leadership of the church. Chapter two has a general theme of, of godliness in the homes as they seek to function together in a way which adorns the doctrine of God, makes the doctrine of God clearly seen in their lives. And chapter three has a general theme of godliness in the culture around them. So if you're to read through Titus, you're going to find several lists of character qualities. This is what you should look like as a Christian, addressed to several different people within the church. And they're always contrasted, almost always contrasted with character qualities that mark the world. Here's what you shouldn't look like. As you walk in Christ, these things should be put off as you put on more of Christ. Paul's calling them to learn in this school of grace how they should now live in the present wickedness of the current evil day. And as he does that, Paul is compelled to equip and call Titus to, to prod the Cretan people along in gospel-driven character. It's all centered around, built upon, flowing out of whatever phrase you want to use, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's character-shaping if they truly have been transformed. By the gospel. In fact, Paul can't mention the gospel in this little letter without talking about its effect. And so chapter 1, verse 1, he says that the gospel, the, the knowledge of the truth, accords with godliness. He, right away, can't talk about truth without talking about how it shapes and changes us. Chapter 1, verse 16, he talks about false teachers who profess to know God, but their works give them away. So it's kind of the counter of that reality. They're, they're known by their works. Though they say the right things, they're known by their works. Chapter two, verse 11 to 14, I just read part of that. The, the gospel trains us how? How to think? Well, yes, but more than that, how to live, how to put off sin and how to grow in godly grace. Chapter three, verses one through five speaks of how the gospel has, has changed us to be submissive to authority, to be obedient and ready for every good work chapter 3, verse 8, speaks of those who believe in God, that they must be devoted to good works. And then he ends the letter in chapter 3, verse 14, saying that God's people must learn to devote themselves to good works. You see, Paul can't tell Titus to grow the church in godliness without linking gospel and living. Grace and truth fleshed out in life. And so as we've worked through this wonderful letter the last time we were in it, we were in chapter 2. Pastor Larry preached the last two sermons in this series on what life that is according to sound doctrine looks like for young men and young women. Right before that, I preached two sermons on how the sound doctrine produces lifestyles of older men and older women that adorn the doctrine of God. What I want to do tonight just briefly is kind of wrap that all up, put the package back together. Tie a nice bow on it and help you hopefully understand it. Uh, And I want to do that by making three points. Uh, One point from Titus 1, and then two points from Titus 2, 1 through 6. And they they all serve, those points serve to support the main theme. And that is this, that sound doctrine has everyday usefulness. Sound doctrine has everyday usefulness. And there's many ways you could say what I'm going after. That's how I've chosen to say it. Tonight, another way to say it is that what you believe matters tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. Not just what you believe in a statement of these things are true, but what you believe in your heart, what what you truly believe, that matters. How you understand things shapes how you live in light of those things. Now, this is important, and and I know this is not true here at Newton Bible Church, but in the evangelical world, doctrine has become a taboo word. It, it's a $10 word that if you are a doctrinal preacher, that is a slam against your preaching. You are boring and disengaging and unhelpful to the body of Christ. To, say, to speak of doctrine, it speaks of, of seminary level debates over the minutia of scripture, right? That's one of the things you think of when you hear the word doctrine or at least that most people do in evangelical circles they hear the word doctrine they think of a thick systematic theology book and believe me I got some thick ones that are too intimidating to be helpful and too hard to read to be useful but Paul is saying to Titus in this letter that you need to set things in order in the churches of Crete and a major component to how you do that is to teach sound doctrine, which then shapes sound living. He tells them in chapter 1, you need to appoint elders in every church, in every town. And what are they to do? They have two main qualifications. If you look back at chapter 1, they have two main qualifications. They are to live lives in accord with sound doctrine. And then they are to hold firm to sound doctrine so that they can teach it in the church and rebuke those who contradict it. That's their two qualities. Live a life according to sound doctrine and teach sound doctrine and rebuke those who don't. That's all that elders are supposed to do, according to Paul's letter to Titus. This is the health of the church is dependent upon those men doing that, living in accord with sound doctrine and teaching and rebuking in line with sound doctrine. So even there in chapter 1, you can see that there's this undeniable connection between doctrine and living what you believe, and how you live. Recently, I was at lunch with Charles Heck. He's a good friend of mine. He's a pastor of Wichita Bible Church, and we try to get together uh, every so often. I don't know how often. Catch up on life and particularly talk about our pastor's fraternity that him and I started together. It's a group of area pastors. This is free information. I'm just throwing it at you. Uh, I want to encourage you that that pastors in your area, that we do have like-minded fellowship, and I have especially benefited from those men uh, have just so enjoyed their input into my life, um, and Charles has been one of the, the main uh, helps to me, a good friend of mine. Anyways, he was telling me at this lunch about an experience he had over Christmas break. He was with extended family, and one of his nephews had just started working for Chick-fil-A, and so his nephew had the employee manual from Chick-fil-A, and Charles says, have you ever read that thing? Like, <laughs> would I have read the manual for Chick-fil-A. Anyways, all right. He's like, well, I just picked it up. I started reading through the manual, and he's like, it was, it was amazing. It was like incredible how they laid out for their employees how they view the business and how they view the customer and how they view the, the workspace and how they view the role of each employee. Just go, it's so detailed and so thorough. And he's like, and you can just see the Christian principles, biblical principles bobbing up to the surface on every line of that manual. And, and he's like, and you know what? It makes sense. He's like, you go to a Chick-fil-A and that you're well served there because they've all bought into the doctrine of Chick-fil-A culture. And that's their doctrine. It's, it's their doctrinal statement that they disciple their employees in. This is what we, Chick-fil-A, believe to be true about our business, about making money, about serving the customer, about your role in the, in the line of command, whatever it is. And that then shapes how their employees work in the environment that they have been given. What you see in Chick-fil-A is a reflection of their doctrine. Their living is impacted by their believing. So, too, with any restaurant. You go to McDonald's or Wendy's on the other end of the spectrum, and you see their set of beliefs lived out in how you are served in those restaurants. So, too, with us in everyday life. What you truly believe will shape how you truly live. Live, namely how you spend your time, what's important to you, what you look at most on your phone, who you contact, how you develop and keep and maintain relationships, how you spend your money, how you treat others within your home and within your workplace and within your school environment, how you resist evil or how you give in to evil, and on down the list. All of those things are shaped by what you really, truly believe. And so Paul is saying to Titus, listen, you have to instruct the church that how they are to live lives that accord with the gospel, with sound, true, healthy doctrine. Let me make three points quickly to you from this text. The first is that ungodly living exposes unsound doctrine. Ungodly living exposes unsound sound doctrine look back at chapter one I wanted to just show you this fleshed out at the end of chapter one Paul finishes that chapter by spending six verses detailing out the lifestyle and the impact of those who do not adhere to sound doctrine so I already told you this but in verse nine he says elders have to be those whose lives reflect sound doctrine and who hold to sound doctrine They then can instruct others in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. And then verse 10, he launches into an explanation of those who contradict sound doctrine. He marks them out. Well, how does he mark them out? By what they believe? No, he marks them out by how they live. Like Jesus, he sets them apart by their rotten fruit. He shows that they are a rotten tree by the rotten fruit they produce in life. This is Very instructive for us. Very instructive for us. I want you to see how helpful this is to our own growth and development in the Lord. Verse 10, he says, they're insubordinate. They're empty talkers. They're deceivers. Notice in verse 10 that these character qualities, or maybe better, these character vices, are especially true of the circumcision party. Those are the ones who are entering into the church and demanding that people follow the Mosaic law, namely circumcision, in order to be right with God. They've added to the gospel, unsound doctrine, correct? They've lost the gospel. They are anathematized by Paul in his letter to the Galatian churches. But, but Paul, here to Titus, doesn't focus on their unsound doctrine. He focuses on their ungodly behavior. And he says, by their ungodly behavior, you know they have unsound doctrine. In other words, don't listen to their doctrine because their lives are a mess. He goes on, verse 11, some of them were upsetting whole families by teaching wrong doctrine for shameful gain. In other words, they were gaining a hearing and gaining some kind of financial benefit to themselves through their false teaching. And goodness, just turn on the TV today and you see so many men doing this, well, men and women, doing this very thing to the shambles of American Christianity. Through their TV teaching, they have found a way to use false teaching to be personally profitable. But the fruit of that teaching is not life and health and peace and relational harmony and unity and thriving lives in every relationship. No, what's the fruit of that kind of teaching? Well, Paul says they're making a mess of homes. There's all kinds of discord in families because of that False doctrine. Again, they're known by their fruit, by the damage they're doing in lies. Verses 12 through 14, he calls them liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. He links that to their culture's worldview. He says, All Cretans have been said to be that, and it's true, he says. In other words, they bought into the, the their culture's th- view of things, and so lying apparently in Cretan culture was totally acceptable, and maybe you've been around cultures like that. There's cultures where it's actually a prized thing to lie so that you either protect the person you're lying to or you get your way in the end, and that's actually better for society as a whole. It's a deceptive and ungodly view of life, but Cretans had bought into that kind of thinking. And so the remedy given by Paul to Titus is to look at that, rebuke them sharply, So that they may be, what? Sound in the faith. He doesn't say to them, stop lying. Stop being lazy. Stop being gluttonous. No, he says to them, says to Titus, rebuke them so that they're sound in the faith. Because sound doctrine will keep them from lying. Will move them from being lazy gluttons. Will take them from being evil beasts to being Christ-honoring servants verse 15 to these who are false teachers nothing is pure he says both their minds and their consciences are defiled in other words because their minds are corrupted everything else is corrupted that's instructive that's false doctrine coming out in every area because false doctrine has polluted them everything's polluted verse 16 what they say isn't really what is important the proof is in the pudding as the saying goes their lives are filled with what is detestable and disobedient and unfit for any good work. Apparently, it's obvious to all. I mean, Paul is just saying it as it is, and you really can't disagree with it if you know the lives of these people. They, by their works, they deny their profession. So is it the profession that matters? Is it, is it the doctrinal statement? To be able to detail out, yeah, I believe this check, this check, this check, this check, this check. Well, that matters, but if you really believe that, the fruit of that will be seen in a transformed life. You must actually and truly believe something. The truth must enter into you. As you receive the the truth of God's word by faith, believing it to be from him, therefore being from him for it to always be right and always be relevant, then that truth starts to shape you and transform you, remake you. So where there's ungodly living, there's an expose of unsound doctrine. So Just think about that in real life. So for example, let's say that you see in your life a, a pattern of lazy gluttony, And you're concerned about it. If I, if I keep sitting around, Too much and eating too much. I'm going to weigh 800 pounds and lose my job. I mean, you're you're concerned about the lazy gluttony in your life. So, what do you find is exposed through those ungodly practices? Is it just that you lack self-discipline? That you need to hire a life coach or a drill sergeant to yell, scream at you beside your bed for three weeks? To get you out of bed and get you moving and stay on top of you in the workplace that you stop doodling around and being distracted on your phone or your computer and get to work? you just need new motivation? Is that what that shows? Does your lazy gluttony just show that, that something's off in your practice? No, there's, there's more here, and I think it shows that your doctrine is unhealthy. There's something about your understanding of God's word and God's world that's skewed. There's something you're not thinking rightly about, something you haven't received yet from God's truth about who you are in his world and who he's created you to be in Christ. And so your your spiritual man is sick because he's, he's feeding upon spiritual junk food. And there's an unhealthy life that's the result of that. And, and in that case, in our example, it's lazy gluttony. It could be any number of things. I'm just picking that. See, ungodly practice exposes unsound doctrine. Second point, sound doctrine shapes sound living. Flip side of the coin, kind of talking proactively now. Sound doctrine shapes sound living. That's why the Spirit of God through Paul says to Titus, teach the churches in chapter 2, verse 1, that which accords with sound doctrine. In other words, he's saying to, to Titus, listen, there is a way of living that is in line with and fitting to and proper in light of sound, healthy doctrine. A word for sound is a Greek word out of which we get our word hygiene. It gives you kind of the idea of the, the sphere of the word, the idea of the word. This is a, a healthy grasp of doctrine that produces healthy living. It's, it's whole and it's complete. So if we understand and believe the truths of Scripture, then we have lives which evidence the, that doctrine, that healthy doctrine through healthy living. To use the physical body as an illustration, as I just did, to have a healthy and sound intake of food, one that is complete and well-rounded, checks all the boxes of, well, maybe not the FDA, but whoever tells you is healthy to eat, you're going to have a body that is responding to that healthy intake with a healthy and sound physique and energy level and health overall. But if you feed that same person an endless supply of junk food, you know the results. You get junky results. Unhealthy, unsound Results, disastrous gut health and all the rest. But if there's a healthy spiritual life then, one that's growing and thriving and producing good spiritual fruit, then that is evidence of sound doctrine being taken in and truly believed and reshaping. So this is not the doctrine that stays on the page of your systematic theology. This is not the doctrine that that stays in your teacher's lecture in Sunday school. This is not the doctrine that stays in your pastor's sermon or even comes out in your quiet time but stays there. No, this this is truth from Scripture that penetrates your inner man and renews your heart and your mind and transforms you turn with me quickly back to psalm 19 it's a text you know well but see it in this light in light of titus 2 psalm chapter 19 this is the text proclaiming the the goodness of the law of the lord i love how the psalm starts in the first six verses with the general revelation of god the heavens declaring the glory of god and his handiwork and how that teaches and instructs our hearts Number seven, he pivots to God's special revelation. He rejoices in the perfect law of the Lord and how that law revives the soul. Look at the descriptions of of what the word of God does to the believer. The testimony of the Lord, Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That's real life stuff. Reviving the soul is everyday real life stuff. Walking in wisdom rather than folly is every decision you make. The word of God has impact on. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, letting you see what is really true and how you should now live. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. In other words, they've proved to be right in everyday life. You see the goodness of the word of God? see how how the psalmist has taken in the word and the word has been life-changing, life-transforming for him? I know this is Christianity 101. This is like the baby steps of your Christian journey. But you don't sprint without knowing how to walk as a baby. And sometimes you need to be reminded of how that process works. Beloved, the the text of Titus 2 is calling you to the glory of the goodness of the word of God, entering in by faith and transforming you. Jesus says this in John 17, 17, when he prays for his disciples, he says to his father, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. In other words, take your truth and put it into them by your spirit in such a way that they will never be the same that they're cleansed by it and made holy by it. 1 Peter 1, verse 22, Peter says, you've purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. In other words, they've taken in the word, they've obeyed the word, and they've purified their heart in their obedience. And they continue to love in light of it. 2 Corinthians 3 Verse 18, speaking of the, the old, hard realities of the law and the great joys now of the Spirit who's come through the covenant of grace, the, the glorious work of Christ in rescuing us from our sin. Second Corinthians 3, verse 18, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Seeing Christ in his word will never leave you the same. And I don't just mean it'll never leave you how you think the same. I mean, it will fundamentally alter who you are. Paul says this in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but what's the alternative? Don't be pressed in by the world's way of thinking. Don't don't let them shape how you view everything and then obviously shape how you act in everything. What's the alternative? Be renewed. Be renewed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How does that happen? The word of God enters in and renews you and changes you, and you're transformed. What Paul says in the other pastoral letter in 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Profitable for what? Doctrinal statements? Lists of what are true? Systematic theology books? And I love all those things. I champion those things. I read them. So should you. They matter. What we believe matters. But here's why it matters. Because it enters into you and you're never the same. You're fundamentally altered by the grace of God. This is the receiving of truth by faith. It, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That sounds like everyday living type of stuff. Right? Right? This isn't just to win a Bible quiz in Sunday school. This is like how I talk to my wife tomorrow morning type of stuff. How I use my time at work type of stuff. How I integrate with my phone in my life type of stuff. I need the word to shape that and transform that and reshape me in light of that. This is the receiving of the truth by faith. This truth received changes and renews us, remakes us in our lives are forever altered. Last truth, each life situation must be taught sound doctrine. So sound doctrine shapes sound living. But then every life situation in the church must be taught sound doctrine so that they are changed into sound living. That's what happens in the next part of Titus 2. And I I think that's probably super important to your understanding of this book is what happens in Titus 2, 1 through 6. That each life situation in the church is represented as needing to be taught, needing to be instructed in sound doctrine and lives that match it. So Paul's saying to Titus, listen, shepherds need to teach in the church these unique people with this unique truth and how it shapes their lives. It stands out to me in the text that this is a key aspect to discipleship in the church according to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is telling us in Titus 2, this is, this is how you should focus your attention on passing on the faith to the next generation. It's vital for shepherds to extrapolate truth from sound doctrine and press it down into everyday living. In other words, they're never to divorce behavior from doctrine. Shepherds are never just to preach a legalistic moralism which demands keeping a certain standard but is absent of reliance upon the grace of God. But they also should not just preach sound doctrine, divorced from life transformation. The Spirit of God is teaching shepherds how they should train and instruct the church. So if the truth is true, then the truth should be taught as life-changing. More than that, consider how the Spirit of God takes that sound doctrine and then says that it should be applied uniquely to, to each life situation. In other words, God obviously understands that because you're in a different life situation than I am, you have unique struggles and challenges to following Christ. And he owns that here in this text. There's things you're going to deal with in your age and stage of life that I don't in mine That's not better or worse, it's just reality. And so the shepherd's job is to to train every life situation with truth, how they should now live in light of those unique struggles. When Pastor Larry and I talked through this before, that's what we did. We we talked about how older men struggle with this and here's here's the remedy. Here's how they should walk in accord to sound doctrine. Older women, younger women, younger men. We walked through that. So I'm not going to repeat all that. You can figure that out on your own or listen to those sermons again. But what I want to do for just a few more minutes is to ask the question, what is the underlying sound doctrine behind these character qualities? So notice that if Titus is to teach them what accords with sound doctrine, and these are the lifestyle practices that accord with sound doctrine, and what I think the Spirit of God is communicating to us is you need to do the hard work to figure out what doctrine accords with sound living so that you live in a sound way. Does that make sense? In other words, if you have an ungodly lifestyle reality, it's, it's not just a stop it, knock it off, don't do that anymore. No, it's a, there is sound doctrine you're not believing And in your life situation, it might be uniquely this. So pursue this character quality by pursuing the sound doctrine that lies behind it. I think that's what he's saying to you. I'm going to give you just two examples of that. I'm going to give you some homework to take your life situation from Titus 2 and go back and and think through it yourself. Now, the overarching sound doctrine here is the gospel, the freedom from sin given to us in Christ Christ redemption of our souls, which frees us to walk in all of these wonderful ways. But just, just think about the, the reality of, of self-control. So what's, what's the pathway to sound living through sound doctrine, particularly as it relates to self-control? Maybe you've heard it said in a counseling situation or you've been in some counseling training and it's been said, we need to get to the heart of the problem in counseling, meaning we need to dig deeper than surface-level stuff. We need to figure out what's going on in someone's heart and help them change all right and good, agree with everything I just said. But from this text, another way to say that is that we really need to get down to what this person really believes and what they're then acting upon. And then we need to bring truth to bear upon that wrong belief so that they're reshaped by sound doctrine, which will then change their living as they believe, as they accept it by faith, and let it shape and transform their lives. So just to kind of lay that out for you in a practical way, just consider two, just real quickly from Titus 2. So in verse 5, he is telling the older women to train the younger women in these ways. And In verse five, he says, you're to teach them to be submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Notice that Paul does not tell Titus to teach the younger women in these things. He tells Titus to teach the older women to teach the younger women in these. Very, very important. God knows what he's doing in this model. Younger women need to hear it from older women, not from their pastor per se, not that they shouldn't hear it from him too but they need to see in older women that this truth is believed and lived and that it brings joy and the blessing of the Lord. And then seeing it lived and hearing it from their mouths, they're compelled to believe that God's word is right. So namely, at the end of verse five, he says, teach them to be submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Now that's obviously a hot button issue Obviously a hot button issue in Paul's day because he brought it up and a hot button issue in our day because, you know, it's our day. It's a bad thing to tell women that they are to submit to their husbands. This is not a popular thing to say right now. It's one that younger women obviously would naturally struggle with finding their place in their marriage relationship and within the home and within the structure God designed. Even good-hearted, faith-filled, godly women struggle here. And the Scripture understands that. Ladies, take joy in that. Younger men, Scripture knows you're going to struggle with self-control. Take, take a little bit of joy in that. Like, okay, the struggle Scripture understands I'm going to have. There's answers to it, but there's a struggle there, and God knows that. As they struggle through it, what sound doctrine lies behind this character quality of a submissive heart? I think this is so crucial because you can't just bust into a marriage as a counselor. I've seen it happen, I've tried it once, it didn't go well. I don't actually think I've tried it once. I just said that because it was funny. You didn't laugh, but. You can't just bust into a marriage and tell a wife, listen, you gotta submit. Do the submit cheer, S-U-B-M-I-T. Teach the husband how to, how to do I mean, that's gonna be really helpful, right? No, that is not helpful. Don't do that in case you're wondering. It's not enough to enter into a a difficult relationship in a marriage and just say, listen, here's what the word says, do it. Here's your command to obey. Now, obviously, there are commands to obey. But behind all those commands is a, a body of sound doctrine. A whole treasure trove of truth that holds up the behavior And as you receive the treasure trove of truth, it reshapes how you think, and then how you love, and then how you choose, and then how you live. So like this idea of submission of a younger wife to her newly married husband, how do you teach her to submit? You just say, listen, this is what God said, so do it. I mean, you can say that, but it's not very helpful. What you need to say is open the scriptures to 1 Corinthians 11 and say, listen, submission happened in the Godhead. The son of God submitted himself to his father for the accomplishment of our redemption. And in submitting himself to his father and coming in obedience under the will of his father, he was the perfect sinless sacrifice to save us from our sins. His submission was the avenue through which God accomplished a glorious, eternally wonderful reality, which is our salvation. Therefore, what you're being called to, younger mom and younger wife, is the mirroring of Christ your Lord, following his pattern, And according to Ephesians 5, as you move them to there, you say this is now a gospel issue in the sense that your marriage relationship is reflecting the relationship between Christ and his church. And how you act in your marriage is a direct representation in everyday life for all who see the reality of Christ and his church. You're a foreshadowing of The eternal heavenly marriage that will one day gloriously be consummated and forever united. And so, sound doctrine brought to bear upon that young woman's heart is going to produce in her, as she receives it by faith, a desire to do what God's called her to do. Because now she thinks God's thoughts after him. She loves God. what God loves after him. She chooses what God chooses after him because she's been changed by God's word. Consider verse six where he says to young men, be self-controlled. I love how young men get one command. I love it. Guys, be self-controlled. Train them to be self-controlled. Listen, you can get in the face of your teenage son and Say, you're lazy and you need help. You're indulgent and you're wasting your life and you need to get it under control. Walk out the door and see how helpful that is. If you want to know, I can tell you later. Not at all. Those young men really need is for their shepherds, spiritual shepherds and the shepherds in their home, their father's to lay before them the doctrine of scripture that leads to control of their life. There's many places we could go here, but just from this book, verses 11 through 14, speaks of the grace of God that has appeared for our salvation, which refuses to leave us alone, trains us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, godly, and upright lives in this present age. You lay before them the doctrine of the grace of God and you show them from Romans 6 that by faith they've been united to this Christ who has been crucified under the weight of their condemnation and they have died with Christ and they've been buried with Christ and they've been raised with Christ. So much so now that Paul can say to all of us and to young men struggling with self-control in particular, listen, you do not have to obey the impulses of your sinful flesh because in Christ you've been rescued from that. It no longer has dominion over you because you are now under the dominion of Christ. You're freed from its control. You can now say no to the flesh and yes to the Lord. And the only way to do that is by rooting yourself in the grace of the gospel, by believing that what God has said is true and by walking forward in humble dependence, asking him to help you be free from sin and alive to righteousness. And you can tell them as an older man, listen, I've tried. I've walked by faith here and God has freed me again and again again. And again, or you could take them to John 15 and say, Listen, let's talk about abiding in Christ. Right? Isn't that more doctrine that props up the command of living self controlled? Because self control is a fruit of the Spirit. How is the fruit of the Spirit produced out of you? Well, by the Spirit. Well, how? By abiding in Christ. You abide in Him and He abides in you. You will produce much fruit, one of which will be self control. You see the difference? you see how instructed this is to our discipleship model, to our own growth and grace in the Lord? Not just a bunch of moralistic commands, legalistically calling us to a set of behaviors that make God look good. Well, what it is, is having the truth of God enter us and change us to be like him. And being like him, we show that his truth is true. And that's a lifelong process, as is made clear by older men, older women, younger women, younger men. He covers it all. He says, listen, you're all in process. By the grace of God, keep pursuing more growth in grace. Those doctrine enters in, penetrates you and shapes you. It changes you to the glory of God. May God help us. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, thank you for the time to spend in your word. Thank you for your word. We are so glad you've spoken so clearly and so truly. We pray that you'd help us now to go from here more committed to this process of sanctification, of of sound doctrine entering and changing us. Lord, would you have your way with us that we might be more like Christ for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you're dismissed.